here we go. So uh, this I found on Facebook, and uh, sometimes on Facebook, you never quite know what you're going to find. But I have found some profound things on Facebook, and this is one of them. This is called, Why Did God Create Atheists? Now, Buddhism is not atheistic, it's non-theistic, as you probably know. So, for us, God is optional. Uh, We don't blame God for our suffering, and we don't ask God to end our suffering. So, uh, we blame desire and craving and attachment for our suffering. And then we have the Buddha, who, who has shown us how he ended his suffering, and how we can end our suffering doing what he did. But people often wonder why there are atheists, agnostics, secular humanists, and Buddhists in the world. Why would God create those? If God created everything, God would have to create atheists too. So this was uh, Tales of Hasidism, Volume 2, and it goes like this. There's a famous story told in classic uh, Hasidic literature that addresses this very question. The master teaches the student that God created everything in the world to be appreciated, since everything is here to teach us a lesson. One clever student asks, What lesson can we learn from atheists? Why did God create them? The master responds, God created atheists to teach us the most important lesson of them all, the lesson of true compassion. You see, when an atheist performs an act of charity, visits someone who is sick, helps someone in need, and cares for the world, he's not doing so because of some religious teaching. He does not believe that God commanded him to perform this act. In fact, he does not believe in God at all. So his acts are based on an inner sense of morality. And look at the kindness he can bestow upon others simply because he feels that it is right. This means, the Master continued, that when someone reaches out for help, we should never say, I pray that God will help you. Instead, for that moment, you should be an atheist. Imagine there is no God, and say, how can I help? Huh? Mm. I like that one. What do you think, Paul? Well, There you go. You said it all. You don't really see anything else. It's a very Zen answer. Thank you. That's good. So Buddhism is sort of like that, you know. Uh, Buddhism is like, wow, look at all the suffering in the world. And we only talk about suffering and why we suffer. We never talk about um, having a relationship with God, uh, what's the meaning of life, because we know what the meaning of life is. The meaning of life is to end suffering. So how do we do that? What did the, what did the Buddha teach us? Has anybody read about Buddhism yet? Okay, and the Four Noble Truths, Eightfold Paths? Yeah, we read about it. Okay, and what do you think? Good stuff. Okay, you know, it, it, it really, I think, addresses the human condition in a very unique way. You know, uh, it's at the beginning, it sounds like really pessimistic. It's, it's like, okay, you will always suffer. There will always be suffering. And you will always be part of that suffering. Then it says... But the reason you suffer is because you have desire and craving and a thirst. And then it says, but there's an answer to that, and that's nirvana. And then it says, well, but you get to nirvana by doing this. There are eight path factors, and and they're not all linear. You can do some now and some later, or you can do all of them together. And ultimately, after 500 or so lifetimes, you will be... uh, released from suffering. You'll never have to suffer again. Cool. But you know what I have found is not everybody wants to end suffering. Some people really like to suffer because it makes them appreciate the good stuff better. So you get the bad and the good and the bad and the good. It's like a roller coaster ride right through life. So there's something called the six perfections that I'm going to talk about today. And the six perfections are a, 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 a practice that we try to do as Buddhists in the Mahayana tradition to uh, become enlightened. So let me give you a rundown quickly of Buddhism. Theravada Buddhism you know about. That's the Buddhism that the Buddha taught. Those are the Catholics. Okay. Then in the first century we had this giant reform movement, Protestants. 
Mahayana Buddhism, the great vehicle. We're going to include everybody. You don't have to have monks. You can read the books yourself. You can do your own meditation. You can affect your own salvation. You can achieve enlightenment. Sixth century Tibetan Buddhism. A little bit of Theravada, a little bit of Mahayana, throw in some Bon religion, the indigenous uh, religion of Tibet, which is rather magical and shamanistic, and you get this really special bells and whistles kind of Buddhism that a lot of people like. And they got the best robes, too, maroon, a little orange trim. <laughs> you know, so now we have these two places, Isaac. We got Nirvana and we have Enlightenment. And is there a difference? I think there is a difference. So Mahayana is really focused on enlightenment. Theravada is really focused on nirvana. And a lot of people who practice Mahayana Buddhism think the Theravadans are a little bit selfish because they're only thinking about themselves and their own suffering. And so I've come to conclude after reading like a lot of stuff and listening to a lot of people talk that, that maybe early Buddhism was more of a therapy than a religion because the Buddha didn't set out to create a new religion. He set out to end suffering. And until he died, there wasn't any Buddhism in the world. In the same way, until Christ died, there wasn't any Christianity in the world. So, what would be the difference between nirvana and enlightenment? And why, the emphasis, why did the emphasis change when Mahayana Buddhism arose in the world? Well, this is my definition of nirvana. Nirvana is the end of suffering, the end of karma, and the end of all future rebirths. Now to understand that in the proper context. We suffer because we have desire and craving. We are reborn because we have karma. Every time we are reborn, we suffer more and more and more. And after infinite amount of rebirths, we have buried our parents tens of millions of times. We have buried every pet we've ever had. We have lost brothers and sisters, friends and relatives in each lifetime. And then we die, and we're reborn, and we get to lose them all again, and cry and suffer. And if the oceans could be filled with the tears of humans crying for all they've lost over the infinite generations that they've been alive. So in Buddhism, we're, we're sort of saying, okay, maybe the best way to live is not to be born. Maybe the best way to exist is not to be created, which I think is a fascinating concept. So if that's the case, if, if someone can exist without being created, how does someone do that, and that would be through nirvana. So the Buddha, we feel, is not dead, but exists in his nirvana right now, which could be like a parallel universe. But there's no birth or death in this universe because there's no beginning or end. And it's a unique form of existence, and, and Buddhism is sort of emphasizing that. Okay, but that's the end then. Once you achieve nirvana, you're never reborn in samsara, this world again, and then there's all these other people who are still suffering, and you're in your nirvana, never to suffer again, and the Mahayana Buddhists thought that that wasn't fair, that maybe we can have a religion where the goal is not nirvana, but the goal is enlightenment, and maybe we can take a vow to be reborn as a human being time and time again until finally all have been saved, all have ended their suffering, all have achieved nirvana, and then we will except our nirvana, and there's something called a bodhisattva, a Buddhist saint, who, who works in the world to end suffering. We have the Buddhist saint of compassion, uh, the Buddhist saint of wisdom. We have a, a Buddhist saint named Jizu who goes to hell. For all the Buddhists that end up in hell, it's actually Buddhist hell, so you guys don't have to go there. And, <laughs> and, and he's there to help us get out of hell, which is really cool. So we have all these kind of bodhisattvas. So if that's the case, then what is enlightenment? If, if nirvana is the end of suffering, the end of karma, the end of all future rebirths, enlightenment, according to me, would be the direct experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. I'll say it one more time slowly. The direct experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. So, we're born... We have this wonderful gift, it's called ego, self, personality. But it separates us from everything else, because in order for us to use the world to our advantage, we have to be separate from it. For instance, the door. If you're one with the door, you can never leave. So you have to be separate from the door in order to turn the knob to leave. 
in being one, it sounds really good, except if you're a Buddhist, because then you can't do anything. So being separate is really good, but being separate allows us to feel sort of um, fearful and anxious because we're not really connected to the world around us. And, and so this direct experience of enlightenment uh, is that reconnection, is that experience, is that embrace that the universe would give us. And it doesn't necessarily last forever. It sometimes just lasts for a moment, but it reminds you, it changes you, and it allows you to see the world in a different way. So enlightenment is the direct experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. Now we have the six perfections. In Theravada Buddhism, they have ten perfections. And maybe we only have six in Mahayana Buddhism because we're not trying to achieve nirvana. We're trying to get enlightened. And the first... My notes. And the first uh, perfection is called dana, D-A-N-A. Dana is generosity. That's where we start. In, in, in working towards the experience of enlightenment, our practice of generosity is the most important because it's the first step, which is really an odd way, I think, to start a spiritual path, to, to say, okay, you've got to practice generosity. In reality, I think most Buddhists would practice exactly the opposite, which would be renunciation, that they would give up stuff. They would give up stuff to, to become more free and, and less burdened with the weight of ownership. And, and, and I thought that would be the case when I moved into this meditation center uh, 23 years ago, that I was going to give up all my stuff and come here with a table and a chair and a lamp and a book and I would read, and I would meditate, and I would find out all about the, uh, the magical components of life and how they fit together. And what I hadn't taken into uh, account was the fact that it's not giving up stuff, it's giving up attachment to stuff. So I had a guitar, and I had a banjo, and I had a keyboard, and I had harmonicas, and I, I either sold them or threw them away, because nobody wanted to buy old harmonicas. And... And, and today I have uh, two guitars, I have a banjo, I have six ukuleles, and I have 30 harmonicas. And I'm thinking to myself, what happened? I gave it all away when I moved in, and it all came back over the 20 years I've lived here. And what I forgot about was giving up my attachment to stuff. So stuff is not the problem. We all need stuff to live, but the attachment to stuff causes us great suffering. If somebody takes the stuff we think we own that we simply just use, it causes us to suffer. It, the stuff that we really like oftentimes has a newer model available, and then we don't like the old stuff quite as much as the new stuff, and it's just it's this you know, uh, donkey chasing the carrot to find the right stuff and the right combination of stuff to get everlasting happiness, and it never works. So, so the idea is to give up the attachment to stuff, use it, and, and when you're through using it, pass it along, practicing generosity. Give it to somebody now who can use it. And maybe they'll pass it on to somebody else who can use it. And we can have this whole underground economy of generosity where we just keep giving stuff away. Like Paul mentioned, I, I put the song on CD Baby, and I was, I was faced with the dilemma. They, they ask you, okay, do you want to have a 15-second intro, or do you want to let everybody hear the whole song for free? What do you want to do? So, click. Everybody gets to hear the whole song for free. And then you go, okay, so will anybody buy the song? And that's not really the point of the song, to be sold. And maybe in 20 years I'll make the money back, the 60 bucks that I paid to get the song published. But it doesn't really matter, because the song has a whole other function besides creating an economy for me to live. So I, when I looked at the fact that generosity was so important, I said, well, how can I practice generosity in a way that makes sense to me? And so my first attempt at practicing generosity was to use vending machines. Now, the vending machines are oftentimes in corners of hallways and schools and businesses, and, and there they sit waiting to offer you food or drink or something to break the monotony of your day. And what I would do is I'd leave the change behind in the coin slot. And then people would find that change. 
And I don't know if you've ever found a quarter, but it, you know it's your day. And, and maybe you should get a lottery ticket today, too. You know. So that was my first attempt at practicing generosity, as I would leave change behind. And it wasn't a, a big deal, but it did change people's lives and perspectives on their day. Then a couple cats entered the backyard, and I fed them. And we've always had dogs. We had dogs and birds and fish. And, but we didn't really have cats. And now we have two feral cats, and we had three feral cats. And then we had up to 14 feral cats all living in the backyard. So I thought to myself, well, I'm just going to feed them like regular cats so they get wet food in the morning and wet food in the evening, and they have dry food out all night long. We went asked where the other cats in the neighborhood come and visit us and eat the dry food. And sometimes possums and sometimes raccoons as well. So it started out 50 bucks a day, a week, 60 bucks a week. Then it went like, okay, I had people helping me. And now I'm, I'm down to about 150 bucks a month for the cats. You know, and I don't make a lot of money. Um, uh, but that little bit of generosity that I extend to the cats has changed my life in so many different ways. Now, you might not believe this be the case, but there's a secret portal. It's... It's hard to see. You can't see it. Most people are blind to it. And I just stumbled upon it. And the secret portal is generosity and feeding cats. And somehow, when I fed the first cats, the little doorway opened and I walked through it. And now the universe helps to support me. So I, I spend 150 bucks a month on cat food, but oftentimes I'll get three or 400 bucks in return from people practicing generosity, wanting to help the cats magical ways of living. But the porthole is small and it's, it's unaccessible if you're, if you're selfish and don't practice generosity. So I was lucky enough to find it and it changed my life forever. And they say, you know, you give one dollar, you always get two back, you know. And I thought, ah, oh, somebody just wrote that down hoping for the best. But it's true. It's true. Every time you give a dollar, the universe will give you two bucks back. Maybe not the next day. But ultimately, you always benefit from giving food, money, and as you get old, like me and Paul, time. Because when you get old, time is the most valuable thing you have. So to sit down and listen to somebody tell you a story, you are sharing and spending what time you have left to be with that person. What better practice of generosity could there be? You know, so there's many ways to practice generosity, and it always changes the way you live in the world when you take that on as a practice, and that may be why it's the first perfection, that it's a way of connecting to the world in a very unique way. The second one is morality, which is why I wrote the story. You know, or a little song, you know, I will practice not to take life, da-da-da-da-da-da. I thought, yeah, you know, we need, to, we need to really, you know, share this with the young people because we all have to live with each other. And these, these are five ways we can practice Buddhism and be the best neighbor ever. You know, the, the neighbor who doesn't kill you, who doesn't steal from you, who doesn't tell you lies and undermine your reality, who doesn't get drunk and do terrible things. You know, what a great neighbor that would be to have and how difficult it is. And the woman who's doing the book, um, Children's Songs, emailed me. And she said, I love your song. I love your song. And I want to put it in the book. And I want to have guitar chords. And I want to have the lyrics. But there's a problem. And the problem is getting high. That's the fifth one. And you know, if somebody's three years old, they're not going to know what getting high is. So how about, maybe we could use these words, put a little parentheses next to getting high and say these words might be available. Word would be heedlessness. Anybody think that's a good uh, word instead of getting high? Heedlessness? I didn't know what heedlessness was until I studied Buddhism. You know? Then how about moderation? I will practice moderation. Now we're talking to a three-year-old. Do they know what moderation is? You know? I think not. So I'm thinking, well, if they don't know what getting high is, maybe it's a perfect time to explain to them what it is. And I'm thinking a lot of parents just get high and don't think too, too, 
two thoughts about getting high. They, they're at a party, they have a few drinks, they get a little high, they luckily drive home without getting into an accident. It's just such a normal thing to do, to get high. And now in Colorado, you can, you can smoke dope. And I, I heard they're going to change the, the state speed limit to 45 miles an hour because nobody's driving any faster than that anyway. <laughs> you know, so where does getting high fit into your model of right action? You know, um, and, and, and so most religions say moderation, you know. I ain't drunk, I've just been drinking. And that's an old blues song, actually. And, and I'm thinking, and here the Buddhists say, we're taking a stance on this. We're saying, no, no intoxicants. We're not going to get drunk, we're not going to get stoned, we're not going to get high, we're going to stay sober. And there are people who have let go of that fifth precept, who have not been able to hold that fifth precept, and spent thousands and thousands of dollars to get it back. They've gone to rehab, they've gone to retreats, they go to psychotherapy, they want to be sober again. And being high took over their life. Charlie Sheen, Lamar Odom. Man, getting high can screw you up. But do we talk about it? We laugh about it. So I thought this little song, I Will Practice Not to Get High, would be such a good place to start for children. And what is getting high? And why do people think it's worth it? And why do people think it's a hindrance and not worth it? So the first one is not to take life. Everybody knows that. And, and yet we have people that go fishing. And they call it fishing. Let's be honest about it. I love to go on the lake in a boat and kill fish. It's the best day I've ever had. And I bring back 12 dead fish and think, what a day this has been. And I'm going, really? That's, that's, that's good? You know? And I know we all got to eat. And, and there are ways to eat without killing animals. We can just kill broccoli, you know? And, and, but but we, we don't think some things are killing and other things aren't. Like hunting, you say, you know, that's not killing. That's a sport, you know. Oh, gosh. So, not killing. Number one, humans. And, and we've never had a time on this planet when we haven't killed humans. There's somebody being killed right now, this very moment. Every day, every hour, every minute. In every year, somebody's getting killed. People kill lions and tigers and bears. Just ask Dorothy. People kill cockroaches and spiders and ants and mosquitoes. Because they can't think of an easier or faster way to solve the problem. And it's 3 o'clock in the morning and you have a mosquito in your room. And all you got to do is kill it and you go right back to sleep. But maybe if you're a Buddhist and you're practicing not to take life, you get a jar, you turn on the light, you'd find the little guy, you catch it, you take it outside, you let it go, knowing it's only a matter of time until it gets back in, and then you can't get back to sleep. You know? So you watch late night TV, the black and white movies, you know. Cool. Until the sun finally comes up. So not killing takes a lot of effort and takes a lot of time. Sometimes it's just so much easier to kill. Not to take what is not given. What happened to us? What happened to America? You know, there are no more citizens. We're all consumers. Consumers of America. We consume everything. And our ID is the receipt we get. I consumed. See? Now I own this. And do we really ever own anything? When I looked in the mirror today... I said, if I owned me, I wouldn't look like this. I think more Brad Pitt looking. <laughs> but no, I don't own me, and so I look like this. Can I prevent myself from getting sick? Can I prevent myself from dying? Can't do any of that. Do I own cats? Woman and food, food for less, buying cats. How many cats do you own? She says to me. I said, I don't own any cats. Well, why are you buying all this cat food? I care for cats. You can't own them. And she just looked at me like I was insane. But it's true. We can't own anything. We just use stuff throughout our life. Number three, sexual misconduct. Can we live a life and have a full, good life without sexual misconduct? 
And what it, would it be for a Buddhist to involve in themselves in sexual misconduct? It would be having sex with somebody who's married, having sex with somebody who's engaged, having sex with children, having sex with people against their will. Those are the four things as a Buddhist we try to avoid. Do you think all Buddhists can avoid those four things? No. Humans have something called lust, which is closely connected to greed. It's not love, it's lust. And our job, number one, is to survive. Our job, number two, is to replicate. And humans do a really good job of replication. We now have eight billion of us on this earth, like a virus, according to the matrix. And we are pushing towards nine billion. We're, we're just not going to give up. We're gonna, just going to overpopulate this planet until we get to go to Mars. And then we're going to overpopulate that. So why did the Buddhist monks and nuns decide to be celibate? Well, the Buddha told us to be celibate, so we didn't decide it. But what's the purpose of it? And I know as a Protestant, it's probably not talked about as much as it is Catholics, because there are Catholic monks and nuns who are celibate. So number one, the reason a Buddhist monk is celibate is because they live in an economy of generosity. People support them. People give them stuff. People give them money, a place to live, something to do, robes. You know, we don't really have to buy anything. It's all given to us. And, and then our job is to have a lifestyle that's, that represents the teachings of the Buddha and ultimately to become enlightened. We share what we do with people. We don't tell people what to do. Um, we, we, we say to them, this is what I do. So we're teachers as opposed to prophets, I guess. And, and, and because we don't have a regular income, it's really hard to have a wife, it's really hard to have a house, it's really hard to have two cars and pay college tuition. So simplicity. We are celibate, number one, because of simplicity. Number two, and the most important reason we're celibate, is because when you're in love, when you have an intimate relationship with someone, you can be happy and joyful and feel fully realized in that relationship. But there's one thing that you will never be, and that is free. So I was at uh, Catholic high school uh, last week, and I said, who wants to be free? Now one hand went up. They want boyfriends and girlfriends. They want to go to the to the football games, they want cars, they want to have a career, they want to have a nice house, they want all the things we're supposed to have. But the Buddhist monks and nuns, maybe, just maybe this lifetime, have decided all those other lifetimes they did all of that, and none of it led to ultimate happiness. So maybe I'm going to try this way and see what happens. And, and so far, so good for me. I know somebody asked me the other day at the Catholic high school, she said, she said, don't you feel bad about not having a family and a wife? I mean, how do you feel about that? I said, grateful. And she couldn't understand why I would say something like that. But think how much more time I have to practice the ukulele. And, think <laughs> and to create songs, you know, and to do all the stuff I do. Afternoon naps. Every afternoon, a nap. Man, that's the best part, you know. So, so it's interesting to look at the world in that way. And when people ask me for relationship, you know, uh, counseling, I say, well, you're talking to the wrong guy. You know, talk to somebody who has a relationship. I take care of cats. <laughs> I can tell you about that. Uh, number four is to speak skillfully. Not to lie, not to use harsh speech, malicious speech, not to involve yourself in gossip and idle chatter. Number five, not to become intoxicated. Because it steals your wisdom, you become really stupid, you do dumb things, you suffer more rather than less. So, morality. First we start with generosity, then we, then we understand morality, and then we go into the, one of the hardest ones of all, which is patience. Oh. And the older I get, the less I have. And I think, where do my patience go? And all I need to do to test my patience is go into 405. You know, it's like me and 10 million people, and we're all there together at the same time, and I know we're not all going to the same place, you know. And, and, and so how do you, patience is so important in your enlightenment, how do you practice that? Well, the first thing you need to do is forgive. Forgiveness is the first step in patience. And you're forgiving all those people on the freeway with you. You're forgiving all the people who are cutting in front of you, honking at you because you're only going 65, 
you you know you just forgive them and pretty soon your patience starts to arise and out of the patience something miraculous happens and it's called acceptance patience leads to acceptance and in that moment of acceptance you look at the world and you see it is perfect it is just the way it's supposed to be. You've never seen it that way before because you knew it could be different. You knew it should be different. But now you see it as being just the way it's supposed to be. And that moment of acceptance is so peaceful and bliss-like that you just relax into the present moment until you get to the 110. And then you start forgiving again. <laughs> it's just this whole thing going on. So patience is like really important. Energy. Man, the older I get, the less I have. Spiritual energy. Where does that come from? What is the deal with spiritual energy? Maybe as a Christian, the energy comes from I want to have a relationship with God. And it's going to take me a whole lifetime in preparing to have that. So I'm going to practice on earth with all the relationships I have on earth. And then when I have a chance for the big relationship, I will know exactly what to do. And every morning you get up and you say, okay, this is what I need to do today. And the energy just comes because you want to have that relationship. And for a Buddhist, the energy would come because we just want to not suffer as much. We're just tired of suffering. And so I need to really put a lot of effort into this practice so I can suffer less. And the energy is a consistent energy. And, and I just got a new banjo on eBay, which is actually a used banjo, but new to me. And I have this book, 256 pages, the ultimate plectum banjo book. It tells you everything you need to know about how to play the banjo in 256 pages. So every day I get up and I hold that banjo. And, you know, I adjust the string so everything is just right. And I practice my chords and maybe a song. And then I'll do some, maybe some scales and I'll put it back. And every day I get up and I do that. And I realize by doing it every day... I am building muscle memory, which I found out is really nothing to do with your muscles at all. You're actually changing the shape of your brain when you have habit patterns like that. So so the C chord is coming really easy now. The G chord is coming really easy now. You know, the F7 chord's still a little hard. But you just, you know, every day you're just sort of practicing, and that's what they're talking about. This spiritual energy is this consistent practice every day, not taking a day off, that builds the momentum so ultimately it carries itself. You don't have to put have as much energy into it because it's like a, a big wheel rolling downhill and you've pushed it with your energy, your consistent energy. Fifth one is meditation. 44 different kinds of Buddhist meditation. Four kinds of insight meditation. 40 kinds of tranquility meditation. So I've shared this story before, but I'll share it again. When I first started practicing Buddhism, I wanted to do insight meditation. I wanted to do vipassana. And that's the fast road to, to nirvana. You just get this, all these insights into the true nature of reality. And then you just, you know, one day you wake up and you're in nirvana. And so I started doing vipassana meditation. And I started getting some insight. And I started to really hate people. Because I looked around and I saw, I saw the agendas they had and, and how unskillful they were and what they did and oh, if they could only do this and, and why are they dressed like that and look at their hair and all that kind of stuff, you know. So I said, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this insight meditation because I hate people and next I'm going to hate myself and then I'm going to hate everything. So I'm going to do tranquility meditation. I'm going for the bliss. I want to wake up in the morning with a half smile on my face and glazed eyes. And just look around and really not be able to focus on anything too well. Just to say, okay, this is cool. I can work with this. I can do this. And so for the last, you know, 30 years, I've been doing tranquility meditation. And, and it's just been good for me because it has allowed me to find balance in my life. So I, apparently I already had enough insight, but not the right insight. And then now with the tranquility, I've sort of come to this place of balance. But there are times. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but you're in a fast food restaurant, you know, and there's sort of a line, and the people in front of you have been waiting for 20 minutes along with you before they get to the counter, and finally after 20 minutes they get to the counter, and this is the first time they look at the menu. And you go, really? You had 20 minutes to look at the menu. 
So there are times that I need to bliss out and just go, yeah, just take all the time you need. It's okay. So meditation is designed to bring us into balance. It's designed to, to give us a place that's not too far to the left and not too far to the right, just right there and feel connected and balanced and have a certain sense of equanimity, which can be translated into peace. So if you had a choice between happiness and peace, what would you take? Happiness or peace? You could only have one. Only one. Only one. What do you think? Peace. It's a tough one, isn't it? Yeah, I uh, Most people take happiness. They say, I just want to be happy. Peace, you know, is sort of like flat, uh, happiness when it flatlines. You know? just, uh, who wants <laughs> peace? But the idea in Buddhism is, is to go beyond happiness. Because happiness is always temporary. It it's never really fulfills all your expectations. I mean, you can go to Disneyland, the happiest place on earth, and get the measles. Come on. <laughs> so, and, you know, happiness is overrated. But peace, that's the place, you know. Peace is the place. So the last aspect, the, the, the sixth paramita, the sixth perfection that we want to do is, is called wisdom. Now, Buddhism has some really interesting aspects of wisdom. So I'm going to give you the full wisdom aspect. Number one, first aspect of wisdom is impermanence. That everything changes. Nothing stays the same longer than a moment. And how long does a moment last? A moment actually has no duration. You can have a million moments in a minute, or you can have a thousand moments in a minute. It doesn't have duration. In the same way, a point on a ruler doesn't have a place. You can have a thousand points or one point. So impermanence. You look around and you say, gosh, everything is always changing. That favorite restaurant you went to, closed. You know, that favorite car you had ten years ago is rusted out. Uh, the boyfriend or girlfriend you had thirty years ago, now you look at them, you're unrecognizable. You look at yourself and you say, what the hell happened to me? <laughs> and it's just like, you know, all this impermanence, inside and out, all the time, which means there's no place to stand. There's no way to go back. You can only go forward, which can really be frightening. Because sometimes we just find this perfect place, this perfect moment, and we just want it to last forever. And before you know it, it's turned into something else. So one of the insights that we get from this practice of meditation is that everything is impermanent, and that leads to ultimate suffering. That because everything changes all the time, nothing stays the same very long, we are going to feel that in our loss. We're going to see that everything is going to be ultimately unsatisfactory because everything changes. So the good stuff changes. Thankfully, the bad stuff changes as well, but it doesn't change as fast as we'd like it to. So the first aspect of Buddhist wisdom, all things are in a constant state of flux. The second aspect of Buddhist wisdom, because of that flux, all things are ultimately unsatisfactory. And third, most important, especially in Mahayana Buddhism, that we are not who we think we are. And this is really disappointing. Because I thought there was a core that I could call me. I thought there was an independent, unchanging sort of process that went on that always was me. The same little voice that I had when I was 10 is the same older voice I have now. And they just go, wow. So who am I really? Am I the soul? Am I the heart? Am I the intuition? Am I the intellect? Who am I really? And the Buddha would say, you are none of those things. Those things are there because you have a mind and body and you have the gift of human birth. That we are the only animals on this planet that was given this gift of, of self-consciousness, self-reflection. We can understand ourselves and things around us because we can separate ourselves. And the ego is the process that does that. Now, in Buddhism, we say the ego makes a wonderful tool, but it is a terrible master because it's always thinking about itself and its survival. And rightly so. So we're able to survive in this very difficult world, on this very difficult planet, because we have an ego and we're smarter than the circumstances we find ourselves in. Aren't we lucky? You know, and we can change the course of rivers and we can go to the moon and we can do all sorts of 
amazing things because we have this ego. But then in meditation, you start to see how the ego works, and you start to see the process of the ego arising, existing, and passing away. Arising, existing, and passing away. And you start to see your life is sort of like a relay race, and the ego is what's handed off to each new person. So you can look at your life in decades, if in my case, and say, okay, 10 years ago, I was this guy. Before that, for 10 years, I was this other guy. And before that, for 10 years, I was this other guy. And yet there's a causal connection between all the guys I've been. But when I look at the photo album of my life and I see the little eight-year-old, I'm thinking, God, who was that? That wasn't me. He's dead now. And I see the 25-year-old in the polyester with the cool hair. He's dead too, you know? And then I see the 35-year-old. He's got the brand new car and he's standing by it with a big grin on his face. That guy died too. And then I look in the mirror and I say, well, he's still alive. That's who I am today, in that moment. But tomorrow I wake up and I'm a different guy. And the next day I wake up, I'm a different guy. Is that good or bad to look at your life that way? It's really good to look at your life that way because that means you can have anything you want. All you need to be is the right person. And you're in charge of that. Most of the time, the right person just comes along because of conditions and circumstance. But we are one of the causal conditions of why we exist. And we are one of the causal conditions of why we are who we are today. And if that's the case, that means we can be anything we want. We don't have to settle for what people think we are or who we think we are. We can rethink who we are and become that person. Cool. And they have a lot of prosperity, uh, psychology on that. Even have, in some religious traditions, the prosperity tradition. All you need to do is think about what you want and you can have it. You've got to really think hard. The book called The Secret talked about that. Really think hard and you can have that. And for a while I thought, wow, that is so cool. You can, you can be anything you want to be. You can have anything you want to have. But then I thought to myself, how about all the things I don't think? How about all the things I don't know that exist? If I can only have what I want, I'm eliminating most of the world. Because I only know this much and the world is this much. So how about including all the things I don't know? I can be that too. And that's what happened to me. You see, that, that's the story of my life, is that I never knew anything about Buddhism. I was born a Lutheran. In, in high school, I became an agnostic, question all authority, don't trust anybody over 30. That was me. <laughs> you know? Then you look at the nation and the draft and Vietnam War, and you look at all those things, and no, I'm not going to believe in that either. And you just go on and on and on. Knew nothing about Buddhism. And then one day at the age of 28, I woke up and I realized I was going to die. Just like that. There was no lead up. There was no introduction. There was no preface. It was just like I woke up, I'm going to die. I went, man, I quit smoking that day. I smoked for 14 years, two packs a day. That day I woke up, I quit smoking. The next week I joined the gym. Started working out. I figure if I'm going to die, I'm going to live as well as I can before I die. So I'm going to be in good shape. So I would take my vitamins. I'd work out three times a week. I wouldn't smoke. I'd drink these awful-tasting protein shakes, you know. Oh. But I wanted to be healthy, and I wanted to be engaged, and I wanted to be part of life. And then it dawned on me, well, you know, all human beings die. I'm not the only one who's going to die. And human beings who die well generally have a religion to help them die well. And I didn't have a religion because I had become an agnostic. And now I'm going to get a religion. So I got this book by Houston Smith, World Religions, which was then called Religions of Man, which appealed to me. And I bought the book and I read all the chapters and I read the chapter on Buddhism twice. And I said, I'm going to be a Buddhist. Those guys know what's happening. Now, why did I think that? I don't know. Why did I see the truth of what the Buddha said? I don't know. You see, I don't know. I didn't know about Buddhism. I don't know why it made sense. If I had only stayed with what I knew and what I wanted to be, I would have never picked up that book and I would never have become a Buddhist ultimately in my life. 
and lived here and worked in this little place for the last 22 years. You know, I just, you know, doing my stuff. I got my websites now and I got my podcasts now and I got all the stuff. And I didn't know what a podcast was. They didn't have podcasts back then. So see, if I wished to have a podcast, it would have been, what the hell's a podcast? But all of a sudden I found out what a podcast was. I said, well, this is cool. Podcasts are cool. I started to listen to a couple of them. I said, I'm going to make one. I'm going to record one of my talks and I'm going to figure out how to post it on iTunes. So I went online and I looked at a YouTube video on how to post on iTunes and I did this and you have to do this and you got to da da and I figured it all out, you know, from zero to figuring it out. And then I posted one and then I posted two and then I posted three and now I've got over 120 podcasts which are downloaded 150,000 times a month, 150,000 times a month, all over the world. You know, it just trips me out that people send me emails from, like, Siberia. Great podcast, Kusla. Thanks, man. <laughs> Stay warm. <you> know? <laughs> so all the things I didn't know have become part of my life. And I realize now, as I keep studying and learning, there are even more things that I don't know. That the more you know, the more you don't know. And it's just really weird. So I don't like the book The Secret because it's a giant limitation. It limits you to what you know. And there's so much that you don't know that you could know that could be you or could be something you could do. How wonderful is that? So who is this self? What is this little self thing? You know, well, it's when you see it in action, it's pretty amazing because it takes all the information from six sense doors. According to Buddhism, we have six sense doors. We have eye, and we have ear, we have nose, we have taste, we have touch, we have thinking. It takes the information, and it works out a story. And it always puts us in the story. We're there someplace. You might not recognize yourself in some of these stories, but you're there. And, and it makes you a victor or a victim. It gets you emotionally connected to your life. And that's why clergy tell stories all the time. Because people can relate to stories. If it's just facts and figures, it's so boring, we tune that stuff out. But you add a character in there, and you add a desperate character in there, and we're stuck. We're glued. How's it going to end? I can hardly wait to the end. You know? So that's what our ego does for us. It creates all this information, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thinking, and it creates a story, and we're in there, and that's how we live our life, by the stories that we think are us or we are involved in. That's also a limitation. Every story is a limitation because it has a beginning and an end. Okay, so now there are certain moments in your meditation practice when you have a transcendent experience, epiphany, and you go, whoa, look, you know, and it's not what you thought it was. It's not what you thought it was. And now you realize that the editor, the ego, the editor, sometimes messes up and adds things that aren't there, like emotions from people. Have you ever heard somebody say something and then seen the same words written? And without the human context of the voice and the emotions and the eye contact, sometimes the written word is misinterpreted. Humor is a lot like that on Facebook. People write things that they think is funny. I'm going, really? You thought that was funny? But maybe if they had told me that in person, I would have laughed. So the ego has its limitations too, as far as the stories it can write and involve us in. Do we have to be that person in the story? See, that's the joy of meditation. We find out we don't have to be that person. We don't have to be that person. If that person is not skillful, we can avoid being it by not acting on the person. So we have karma, what we think, what we say, and what we do. So just the other day, I'm in Food for Less buying cat food. I'm walking down the bakery aisle. There they are, hostess cupcakes, individually wrapped, 12 under $3. I said, yeah, man, that's me. See, and, and taking those... 12 Hostess Cupcakes along with a cat food to the, to the counter validated my existence, you know? And then when I got back to the center and unpacked my Hostess Cupcakes, I said, did I have to be that Hostess Cupcake guy? Couldn't I have been like maybe six instead of 12? 
you know, or maybe not bought any at all and got some yogurt instead. Couldn't I have been other guys in that aisle? And of course I could have. But see, the habit patterns were so deep that that's who I was. So in my meditation practice, I see that I can change those habit patterns. I can respond to situations instead of react to situations thoughtlessly. I can be present and accounted for and maybe make a better choice that reduces suffering, my suffering and the suffering of others. So the enlightenment experience allows us to see the world like the article I read to begin with. What happens when we become interconnected and interdependent? Our heart breaks. It never mends again. We can no longer look at the world in a joyful way. Because what we start to see is the sadness and suffering that's experienced by the, by the billions of people that live on this planet. And they're connected to us now, and we're connected to them. And if somebody's hungry, if somebody's homeless, if somebody needs medication and can't afford it, if somebody's dying, that's always going to be a part of us now that's going to be going through that same thing until we go through it. And if you look at people's eyes, you can learn a lot about them. And when I study the pictures of people that are like really smart, rarely do I see joyful eyes. I see sadness in their eyes because they have seen the true nature of this reality that we live in. That it is hard to be a human and it is really hard to exist on this planet because it's filled with birth and death all the time. So the Bodhisattva vow is, I will save all sentient beings. That's the religious aspect of Buddhism. That I will postpone my own nirvana until all sentient beings have achieved their nirvana. And then I will accept mine. It's a pretty heavy price to pay for looking for salvation, looking for religion, looking for a good way to die. Something I didn't think was there. I didn't recognize it at first. And now I see it plain and simple. And for the last 20 years, I've been involved in community service. I was, uh, for one year, I was at California State Prison for Men as a volunteer. For five years, I was at uh, um, Juvenile Hall Detention Center downtown. Seven years, I was part of the Garden Grove Police Department as a volunteer chaplain. For 12 years, I was at UCLA as a chaplain on campus, but also starting a Buddhist club with a with a man named Aaron Lee, and we we created this Buddhist club for everybody on campus to go to. And it just sort of goes on and on, you know. I, at UCLA Medical Center, I was on the spiritual care committee. Cedar Sinai for a year and a half, I was on the spiritual care committee, talking about Buddhist patient care and end of life issues to the new chaplains, and and so where do you go for a vacation where nobody dies, where nobody suffers, where nobody is in pain? Where do you go? There's no place you can go on this earth of ours. So, my patience, my generosity, my morality, all those things enter in into finding peace in this very difficult world of ours. All those perfections allow me to find a sense of balance and not get taken over by fear and anxiety or sadness or joy and hope and elation. That both those don't work very well. That there's some place in the middle that you can stand and feel the balance of your life.